Sermon on the Mount, Father Matthew's account of the life of, of Jesus. The late, great Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was minister of Westminster Chapel in London, who uh, some of us, when I was at college, used to go and hear every so often, a fantastic Welsh preacher, did a whole series on the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, I, I don't know if it's still in print. I've got two volumes of it. He did one sermon, no, two sermons on introducing the Sermon on the Mount. He then did one sermon introducing the Beatitudes. He then did one sermon on the first Beatitude. I'm going to try and introduce the whole Sermon on the Mount and do all the Beatitudes (laughs) right now. (laughs) So hang hang on to your seats. Here we go. We're going to look at the blessings in Matthew uh, chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. So let's introduce the, the Sermon on the Mount and uh, see how we, how we get on. Lots of points here. I'm going to race through it like an express train. If you can't remember it all, don't worry, uh, but uh, take out of it what you can. Number one, it is in, unlikely that this is a word-for-word account of what Jesus said. You read the whole thing, and if you were sitting there listening to it, you would not remember it. You just wouldn't. There's too much. So it is much more probable that it is a compilation of what Jesus said. Two ways. Maybe Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, took blocks of Jesus' teaching and put them together, describing the way Jesus would sit down and teach. Or maybe... This was a succession of days that Jesus taught this and Matthew condensed it and put it into one. Again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We're talking about God's word here. So I, I believe it's, it's probably a compila- uh, compilation and I like that second suggestion actually. But it is a unified whole. It would be possible for me to give you a big chart of what it looked like. I'm not going to bother with that this morning. Uh, We haven't got time anyway, and it would take us off track. But it is a unified whole, and it comes with authority. Jesus is described as sitting down to teach. That is what the scribes did in those days. If you sat down, you were teaching with authority. I'm standing up. (laughs) different culture different culture we've still got the authority of the word of God here so it comes with authority and it's the authority of course of Jesus and note that it's teaching for disciples the crowds were there but the disciples came to Jesus and he taught them so it's teaching for Jesus people The crowds were listening in, but the teaching was for his disciples. Now, I believe over centuries the church has often made the mistake and and tried to apply Jesus' teaching sort of much more generally. I think that's led to all sorts of things, but we can't go into that. But it's teaching for disciples. Number six, it is full of grace. Martin Lloyd-Jones points out, and this is a lesson that I think we need to take hold of. 
the Sermon on the Mount begins with the blessings, the Beatitudes. And it's supremely in them that we meet the grace of God, which then overshadows the rest of what Jesus says. There have been those that said, well, Moses went up a mountain, and Jesus is up on a mountainside at least, so Jesus is the new Moses, and therefore we have a new law. Now the Sermon on the Mount is very practical, but understand this, it comes as a result of the grace of God in the life of Jesus' people. So we need the power of the Holy Spirit. We, we are the other side of the cross and resurrection and Pentecost. We're not the side that Jesus was at that point. We're the other side. And we need the power of the Holy Spirit to fulfill a lot of what Jesus, well, all of what Jesus says here. We need the power of the Spirit. And as we look at it, we'll see, well, now things are imperfect. We'll look at some of the things that Jesus says and we say, I can't do that. Even in the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm not sure that's going to happen totally. So that's the now. But we move towards the not yet of fulfillment. One day we will see it completely. It's the now and the not yet. That's intention here as we read this wonderful sermon and finally we look to Jesus as our example Jesus actually lives out what he teaches now that doesn't mean we can apply every single verse to him as we become pretty obvious I think as we go through but overall Jesus lives this out and he is our example as we look at this amazing sermon, this amazing bank of teaching. So that's the express train introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. Martin Lloyd-Jones, eat your heart out. We've got there. (laughs) He was a great guy. It was a joy to listen to him. So here we go. Now, Matthew 5, 1 to 12. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds... He went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them and said, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because 
of righteousness. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets that were before you. So, let's look at the blessings. A quiz for those who are older amongst us. Who was this man? Well done. Who said that? (laughs) Excellent. This was Archbishop Makarios. He was uh, instrumental in bringing independence to the island of Cyprus. And, uh, I mean, he was a churchman, but he was uh, partly implicated in in terrorist activities. He had to spend a year in exile. He came back and eventually, oh, he wanted union with Greece as well, and eventually uh, he came back to Cyprus and he became the first president of an independent Cyprus from about 1960 to, I think, about 1977. Archbishop Macarius. Why am I telling you about Archbishop Macarius? Because Macarius is the Greek word that is translated blessed. Oh, so he was Archbishop blessed. Or probably to the British at the time, that blessed Archbishop. <laughs> but that's the word. That's the word. And, and people have struggled, scholars have struggled over the years and centuries. How do we translate this word? Well, the most com- common way, of course, is to use the word bless. So we have bless or blessed, ah, and then whoever. How do we, how do we, but it, it, it it's not the same word for God's blessing. It's a different word to that. It's describing a sort of state, the sort of position you're in, the, the sort of what, the way you are. So some translations use the word happy, which uh, happy are those who mourn. That's difficult, but where being happy is not the sort of emotion, but the the sort of state. So, other translations say, oh, the happiness of. Hmm. Well, that's saying the same thing, a bit the same. And others say flourishing or thriving. You're in a good place. And hence you see the the topic of our, our, or the title (laughs) of our series. This is the person whose life is really thriving or flourishing. Some would even say, translate it, congratulations to. (laughs) Congratulations to the poor in spirit. Well, why? Because what what is going to happen? But I think my favourite translation is the next one. It's only my favourite, it's not the one I'm going to use, but it's my favourite translation and it comes from the good land of Australia. Good on you, mate. (laughs) (laughs) You 
you, you are, good on you, mate. You're, you're, you're thirsting after righteousness. <laughs> I think that's lovely. Uh, someone else suggested a Welsh translation, which I couldn't possibly translate or even pronounce. <laughs> anyway, that's what we're dealing with. This is a sort of how we are in these wonderful things that we have traditionally called the Beatitudes. So, how can we analyse, how can we divide up the Beatitudes? That's not as good as I hoped it would be. Blessings 1 to 4. Okay. Blessings 1 to 4 really focus on our dependence on God. Our dependence on God. The first four. Then, the next three, blessings five to seven, is the outworking of our dependence on God. Our dependence lived out. And then, blessing eight, when our dependence upon God is confronted and our response. Now you will notice, those that you uh, have followed the reading, that I've not included verses 11 and 12 as a separate beatitude, separate blessing, because I believe verses 11 and 12 fill out verse 10. Uh, verse 10. But that's a technical point, so I'm treating that as one. So our dependence on God, our dependence lived out, and then our dependence confronted, as we should see. Right. So, our dependence on God. Jesus said, blessed, good on you, the poor in spirit. What does that mean? Well, Jesus certainly is not here saying, to be poor as such is a good thing. That is certainly not a good thing. It's the poor in spirit. So what does that mean? It means that when we're poor in spirit, we have and we feel a great need of God. We look into our own lives and we think, really, before God, in myself, naturally, I am nothing. I cannot justify myself before him. I cannot... I cannot say that there's any natural good in me. When I look at the purity and the vastness and the majesty and the greatness of God, and when I compare him to me, I am nothing. I am poor in spirit. I, 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 I really need, I need him. If I to be anything, I need him deeply. And that's, that sets the scene for our dependence on God. I need him. You need him. In these days, in the 21st century, we, the people of God, need him deeply. Because in and of ourselves, we haven't the resources to, to, to achieve. We need God. And what, what does he say? He says, the kingdom of heaven belongs to those people. Why? Why? Because when you see your need of God, you submit to him. And therefore you're placing yourself 
under his rule, his kingship, his authority. God, I need you. And we can say, God, we need you. And then two, those who mourn. Now in context, this cannot mean just those who are bereaved. But let me say this. I know, you know, that God comes close to those who are bereaved. That's what he does. He knows about it. He understands it. And when, when we're commending uh, a brother or sister into the hands of God, we say, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. That is true. Of course it's true. He's the God of all comfort. That's what he does. But in context, this doesn't mean just mourning over bereavement at all. I need God was the first one. So what do I mourn? I mourn my sin. I mourn my failure. And not only my sin, my failure, I look out into the world and I see what's going on in the world. And we've had reference to that already this morning. When you... When you turn on the radio or television and you hear about lives destroyed. When you hear about wars, this awful war that's still continuing in Ukraine. When there are people that you know or know of that are caught up in this, you say, oh God, what a situation. When we look closer to home, at society, and the way things are going in many respects, we say, oh God, it's awful. And we mourn it. And we see our own part in that. But praise the Lord, Jesus says, those who mourn will be comforted. Even in this way. The Holy Spirit, the comforter, will come alongside. And this is the grace of God. It's all of grace. And then the meek. Meekness doesn't mean weakness. Hear that? Meekness does not mean weakness. Jesus was described as meek. But you could never, ever, ever call Jesus weak. To be meek is to see that you fully depend on God. You, you have said, I'm, I'm poor, there's nothing in me. I look, look in me and I look around and I see the tragedy and I mourn that. So what do I do? I depend on God. I have nowhere else to go. You have nowhere else to go. We have nowhere else to go. We depend on him. And he says, you'll inherit the land, the earth? Yeah. One day, one day there will be a new heaven and a new earth. 
Now, we only feel these things in part. Then, it will happen fully. We depend, we need, we depend on God. And we know that things go wrong, don't we? When, when we, we move out of depending on him and try it in our own strength, things go wrong then. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. If you like, this is more than almost the transition blessing from one to the other. God, I am poor. I mourn the state of, that I'm in, that society's in, that this world's in. I depend on you. Therefore, I long, I long, I long that the right thing will happen. I desire to do the right thing. And God says, I'll fill you with my righteousness. You'll be in a right standing with me. And we can go on together. So that's our depending on God. So often, so often, we don't do that. We sing it. I'm talking to myself here. We sing it. We pray it. We preach it. And then Monday to Saturday, we don't do it. We worry, we fret, we have anxiety, whatever. But God says, you can trust me. You depend on me. So our dependence on God. And the next three is our dependence then lived out. As I said, that that last one was a sort of transition. Blessed are the merciful. Now, to show mercy is not only to forgive, but it is to pull back from revenge. And there is so much crying for revenge. This has happened we want them to pay. Now, that's, not, that's justice. Justice is one thing. Revenge is something else. And to be mercy said, merciful said, I forgive you and I'm not going to get my own back. Which is, don't you hear kids saying that? He did that to me, I'm going to get him back. That's not being merciful. Mercy does not go for revenge. And what's the result? We're shown mercy. My word, we needed mercy, haven't we? My life, your life, in comparison to God's holiness, absolutely rotten. We need mercy. And we've received mercy. The Son of God who was absolutely pure, who who obeyed God fully, who lived out this sermon for the totality of life. He went to the cross so that you and I could receive mercy. We deserve to die. We've wrecked and ruined God's creation and our own lives along with it. And we deserve to die but out of his great mercy for us, God sent his son to die on the cross for you and for me. And we have received mercy. 
And those who receive mercy, give mercy. Not revenge, not just forgiveness, but restoration. And Jesus says, blessed are those who are pure in heart. The psalmist said, who's going to go up the hill of the Lord? Who goes up? Who, who goes up to worship God? This is what the psalmist says. Who? Those who have clean hands and a pure heart. So, flourishing are the pure in heart. Good on you are the pure in heart. Both outward actions and inner motives. And I can't do that by myself and neither can you. We need God to help us there so that our motives and our actions marry up together and that we're pure, do the sort of things that God wants us to do. That's living out our dependence on God. We need you, Lord, to help us. Help us to do this. Because ultimately we see God. We see Jesus and in Jesus we see God and one day fully we shall see him as he is. Amazing. And the peacemakers. To be a peacemaker is not just to make peace between you and someone else, it's to bring opposing parties together. I reminded uh, of this, it's not, not appeasement, um, Neville Chamberlain, back in 1938, came back from Munich waving the piece of paper and said, I've got peace in, peace in our time. What had he done? He'd allowed Hitler and, and the German Reich to take land off other peoples. That was appeasement. And what did, where does appeasement get you? Absolutely nowhere. Because once, once an opposing party has, has gained something, they will then go for something else. That's not peacemaking. The, the poor guy, I think he's been mistreated by historians. He did his best, but it was appeasement. That's not peacemaking. Peacemaking is bringing opposing parties together. That is what God has done for us. We are alienated from him, and we, we are separated from each other. And what has God done? In, in the blood of the cross, he has made peace between us and him and between Jew and Gentile making one he has brought us together and he's brought us together that's a minor miracle I always look out on any group of people in church and say isn't it a wonderful miracle that he's brought us together oh well, perhaps you're looking at me and saying no but it, yeah, I mean <laughs> I think it is he is. It's amazing that we are together because, because of the cross, Jesus has made not only peace with us and God, but he's brought us together as one people. He's the ultimate peacemaker. And if we're to follow him, we bring peace between warring factions. And we're children of God if we do that literally sons of God, but that means all of us. We're children of God. We're living out who we are when we do that. 
And the last one, our dependence confronted. Do you think if you do good in the world, everybody's going to applaud you? Because think again. Sometimes the goodness of God's people and the way we are actually confronts people and it shows them what they are. How do you react when you find something that is uncomfortable, you oppose it? And that is what has happened all the way down history since uh, Jesus died, rose, and the people of God, were f- uh, the church was formed. When you, be, when you live it out, it doesn't mean you always can be accept, uh, accepted. Often you're not. And that can happen on the small scale, and that can happen on the large scale. In the early church, of course, it was said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. People went to their deaths because of faithfulness to Jesus. Why? Because evil opposes good, and evil tries to win. And that can happen on a small scale. Ah, you think you're holier than thou, don't you? You think you're better than anybody else, don't you? Because you go to church, you must be like that. You think you're better than I am, when the answer is no. The reason I am part of the church, because of what Jesus has done, is because I realise I am not better than you. In fact, I might be worse. But thank God, he's met me, and he's forgiven me, and he's renewed me by his Spirit. So, rejoice and be glad if that sort of thing happens. Jesus says, great is your reward in heaven. Rejoice and be glad. Heaven is on its way. Thank God. It's coming. So you can rejoice. When you face opposition, you can rejoice. Hard to do, isn't it? It is hard to do, to rejoice. You can feel bashed and battered and bruised and broken. But Jesus says, rejoice. Because they did it to the prophets and they'll do it to you. But rejoice. Heaven is coming. Well, that's it really. What I'd like to do to finish is to to just, as it were, go through all this again. But just to voice what we feel to God. So I'm going to, I suppose you say, I'm going to pray. But I, I want to go deliberately through because I think these lessons are deep. And we need them to sink into our spirit, into our very being and then to take hold of us. So let's, let's just be quiet for a moment. Lord, we come to you and we first of all say we're poor. Without you, we have nothing. And Lord, we're sorry. We're sorry that so often we let you down. We're sorry for the state of the world. We're sorry for the things that happen. 
But right now, Lord, we're sorry for what goes on in our own lives. And Lord, we know that the only thing we can do is to utterly, completely depend on you. Help us to do that, Lord, by your your spirit, by your grace. Help us in this time, all of us are going through different situations and even as a church together we're going through ups and downs and we need, Lord, we need your help. For without you we can do nothing. But with you, Lord, we know you will achieve through us great things. So we need you. Help us to to really intensely desire to hunger and thirst for what you want. Not what we want, Lord, but what you want. To hunger and thirst for what you want for me personally, Lord, and what you want for us as church together. And help us, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit to begin to follow that way. So we utterly depend on you, Lord. And then, Lord, help us in all things to show mercy to one another. Yes, Lord, we, sometimes we get under each other's skins and we can rub each other up the wrong way. But Lord, help us not just to forgive, which we need to do, but help us to prefer the other person, to think the best of the other person, to look for the good in the other person and not to criticise or condemn. Keep us from gossip, Lord. Keep us from bad talk. Help us to forgive. Help us, Lord, to bring peace. Through the purity of our hearts, Lord, we we just want, we want to go your way and we want to, to, to bring peace, Lord. So help us. Help us in our motives. Help us in our desires. Help us to make this family of your people here a place of peace and security and goodness. And Lord, help us to stand strong. Society is throwing all sorts of things at us and it's not always easy to stand up for what we believe is right and true. Help us, Lord, to do that not out of any sense of triumphalism or superiority, but out of a sense of grace and love and mercy. Help us to stand true and whatever opposition comes, Lord, help us to stand firm in the power of your spirit. And so, Lord, we just pray for this group of people gathered here before you right now and we say, Thank you. 
that you're a God that can be relied on, depended upon. And Lord, thank you that we know that ultimately the kingdom will come and the glory will be yours. We're in that tension of now and not yet. But Lord, help us to live out for you in these days. We bless you, Lord. And we thank you. Amen.